let's pray as we look into God's word together. Let's ask for his blessing on us. Lord, I just thank you so much that anywhere in the world we go, you are there and you are working amongst people, Lord, and it doesn't matter where we are, we can speak to you and we can learn from you. And thank you, Lord, for your word to us and pray that as I speak this morning that it's uh, encouraging and challenging, as Michael said, Lord, and want those, love those things in equal measure. So thank you for this opportunity. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that said, we'll get to that shortly, but I would like to give a bit more of a background about who I am and who our family are, who we are. So just uh, being a pastor is one of, one of my favourite things to do in life, especially the, um, the teaching aspect. I just love to really help people get into the Bible. So, and, and I'm not passionate about that just for getting others to learn the Bible as such, just to learn the Bible. But because I believe the Bible perfectly reflects uh, to us the God who made us and who wants to know us. And it does that by putting a magnifying glass right on Jesus. And that's really what it's all about. So getting to know God personally through his word as the Holy Spirit opens um, our hearts to that. So yes, I've had this conviction for a long time. I was brought up in a good, solid, as you might say, good, solid Baptist church back in Noangarup. Some people know, might know where that is. It's a couple of hours that way. And I uh, haven't lived there for quite a while now, but that's still home in my heart, I, I guess you could say. But it's, it's in that church, especially, and with my, my parents, that, uh, that God's word was built into me, you could say. And, I, and so that, that's a great foundation, as I'm sure you'll understand. But that's not what saves anyone, right? It's not just having the word built into you. It's a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And, and that happened for me when I was about nine years old. So that's when I first repented for my sin, uh, to the extent I knew how at the time, when you're only nine years old. But from that time, I've taken a slow and often winding path to where I am today. So I'm pastor at Collie Church of Christ. And that's where my family and I have been for the last six years, nearly six years. I think like the 1st of January was the, when we started right on the new year. So. so my wife Steph laughs that she married um, an engineer and ended up with a pastor. And in between there I was a school teacher for a while, several years actually. So it's been a bit of a, I like to see it as a gradual change in trajectory. And uh, a gradual decrease in maximum earning capacity too, if you, if you look at that as well. So yes, my wife, dear wife Steph, has had a lot to deal with being married to me. So please give her uh, your sympathies when you speak to her. And our three lovely children too. Um, is Toby, who's is 13, yes, he turned 13 in September. Um, Eli, who's 10, and Ashlyn is 7. And they've had to move churches and move schools and move towns as well with us obviously so and, uh, and speaking of schools you know some of you may know Toby our oldest from Grace he's been going to Grace Christian School this year and then I'm sure others other, others of you will get to know Eli and Ashlyn as they come to this this very school next year here at Bunbury Baptist College so please pray for all of us in that transition period that changes are still coming in our lives and we've been going to our new house which is just down the way here now and uh, trying to get that ready to go. So um, it'd be nice to have some stability for a while. So, so if I'm being honest, th that'd be great. So this is just a, a brief overview of my family and myself, but we're here to talk about God, aren't we? We're here to know more about Jesus because he's what it's really all about. 
And in a world that's so topsy-turvy and that so often finds new ways to beat us down as Christians, we need him more than ever. I'm sure a lot of you have been feeling that. Actually, saying that it's not quite right, is it, to say we need him more than ever. We need him as much as we ever did. But maybe it's more that we're starting, some of us, to realise just how deep our need is now that the circumstances might be revealing our own inadequacy. I don't know if you've perhaps been feeling some of that. Which is, I suspect, a lot of the point of why God is allowing these COVID challenges at the moment and difficulties in any time, really. That's when we're forced to rethink our reliance on ourselves and seek Jesus more earnestly and urgently in humility and repentance. I think that's what God's calling us to do. And he uses various means, and this is one of them he's using at the moment, I believe. So today I'd like to take us through a scripture that has that kind of attitude, that humility and repentance idea in spades. It's uh, Psalm 37. So I've, I've called this Don't Stress. And that's kind of the key thought for today. So I'll be, like I said, building it around Psalm 37. And I suspect some of you may have rediscovered Psalm 37 more recently because I know I've come across a few preachers in the last year or so who've uh, spoken about this, uh, this particular psalm because it does, like I say, have a lot to say about our situation. And I'm not presuming to do a better job than those pastors, those preachers, but I just love the encouragement that it's brought to me. So I hope I can bring some of that to you this morning. So as we have our time today. So we're going to focus on the first 13 verses of this psalm. All right, so just to set the scene this morning, I'd like you to introduce, oh, I'd, like, I'd like to introduce you to this guy on the screen. Okay, so you can see he's well-dressed and clean. He's got a pile of great food ready to go in front of him and he's ready to eat it, obviously there. And looks like his only concern in life is which plate to eat from first, isn't it? Okay, so I think he looks like he's in a pretty good spot there. So let's uh, now, I'd like to introduce you to this other guy. So he's, for those who can't see this if you're hearing this message, um, He's a scruffy old bloke. He's squatting by the side of the road holding a sign saying he's homeless and hungry. So it looks like he's been living on the rough side of the tracks for quite some time. Now, just as you look at the contrast here, I want you to think, which one would you rather be? You're probably going, duh, right? Okay, so just on the face of it, would you like to be the guy on the right or on the left? Easy decision, right? Because uh, what's visible there is all we have to go on. We've just got these two pictures. So the guy on the left would be the smart choice, right? He's, I'd much rather be sitting there with lots of food to eat than wondering where your next meal's coming from. Okay, so we agree the guy on the left, right? Now, I've actually played a bit of a trick on you, okay? So I haven't, didn't warn you about this, but I've, uh, I haven't told you the whole story. Now, when I tell you a bit more information, it might affect your assessment. So it turns out the guy on the left with all the food, now don't let the suit fool you, he's actually on death row. So what you can see there is him with his last meal. He's one of those guys obviously ambitious for his last meal. But that's, that's what he is. And once he eats this, he's going to go to the gallows and that's the end for him. So it's interesting how a bit more context and some insight into the bigger picture can change how you look at things, isn't it? And there's also something I need to tell you about the guy on the right. So you can see he's looking up the street there. You can see there's a car approaching. And in that car is a long-lost auntie who um, has been driving all around looking for him because he's actually the sole heir to 
$10 million fortune left to him by his estranged father. So, within seconds of this picture, he'll be found and taken away to claim that inheritance and live a life of great abundance for the rest of his days. So I guess his cry for help on the sign there is about to be answered, right? So that's, that's what we have. So, okay, so let's revisit the question. Who would you rather be now? Really, honestly. I mean, we're talking world level, of course, here, worldly level, but... So isn't that interesting? The images I'm showing you haven't changed at all. Nothing's changed about the pictures. But we now know the full story of these two men, and the decision is clearly reversed, right? So we'd rather be the homeless guy now, because we know what's coming. But at first, when we ha all we had was what we could see with our eyes, the situation looked completely different, didn't it? So, what I'd like us to find today is that when we understand the true context of what we see in our world now, we'd much rather be the homeless guy than the rich guy. In our world too. Okay? So that's the perspective that the Bible shows us, and especially in Psalm 37. So when we step back and take the eternal view that God has, we'll maybe even see that we can laugh at things that other people might find downright scary, just as God is described as doing in this psalm. Now, is that a bit much to expect in a, in a scary world that we can actually laugh? <laughs> well, let's see. As we take a look at what David writes for us, I think he can help us get there. And just as we begin, uh, we know from later in the psalm, so verse 25, that this is when David is an old man. So whereas many of the psalms we've seen so far are from his struggles in his younger days, this is now the wisdom of a statesman who's been through the ups and downs and the sins. He's had plenty of sins, as we read in the Bible, and trials and losses and, and victories. And he's come through them all with faith that's more than just intact, but strengthened and established deep in the love of God. So it's something we should really pay attention to when David starts out by helping us see that we needn't get all worked up when the wicked get their way. So we'll call this first section, we've just got a couple of sections we've broken this into, into. So Psalm 37, 1 to 6, we'll call, don't stress, just commit. So I hope you can see that permeating this psalm as we go through. So verse 1, I tend to read each verse as we go, that's my style. So this is the psalm of David. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers. Now I, th I think there's a fair bit of that going around at the moment, certainly the, the first part of that verse anyway. We see people who hate God and apparently also hate other people and they appear to be pretty successful. And it stresses us out. Well, I've felt that anyway. I hope some of you have felt the same. So in fact, the Hebrew word behind this word fret literally means to get hot. This is about heat, which is why I went with the picture of our little friend Anger there from the Inside Out movie. It's kind of the idea of this verse that we, we get all steamed up with the injustice of it all. Anyone felt that? hope so. Well, in a sense, I hope not, but I know we all do, because this is life. And perhaps we even get a little bit jealous of their apparent success. But it's apparently not good for us, sorry, not apparently, it is not good for us, it's actually not good for us, to fire up in a negative way like that. So we, we can burn up and it does us some serious damage. So David's advice is, you know, hey, be cool. Let's put it in modern language, there's quite a few, like chill even, you know, chill. If, if Don't sweat it. So there's a few ways we can put it these days which we carry that idea of being cooler. But we might respond to that, but how? You know, this is getting me upset. 
getting me hot under the collar? Well, the answer lies in getting a bigger perspective, as we did earlier. So remember we saw the big perspective on those two pictures of the two men? Well, that's what David encourages us to do. So verse 2, For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. So, ah, do you see that? Now we're stepping back to get a long-term view of how that, how that helps. Because sitting here right now, it seems the bad guys are winning in this world. So they're shoving their godless ideologies down our throats and wanting us to say how wonderful it tastes. But we can, in our minds, we can step back from this little ball called earth because we have the eternal view, we should have, as believers in Jesus Christ. This life is not all there is. One day we will all stand before the ultimate judge, that's Jesus, as we know, and then we'll see who will stand, won't we, when we before Jesus. The answer, of course, is of those who stand is, is only those who have already trusted him with their lives while still on earth. So we have to come to him before we go to, to that day. Because the judgment of God is often likened to fire, uh, fire that will be applied to things to tell what will stand in eternity and what won't. The fire judges those things. And so if the wicked ones are like grass, as he pictures here, how do you think they'll go in the fire? Especially dry grass. Yeah? So, you know, that's, that's the worthlessness of the world in, in God's view. So our strength will need to be elsewhere, which we see in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, in the context of when this was written, uh, this is, of course, directed to the people of Israel because David wrote this about a thousand years before Jesus came. So the context was the people of Israel who had taken the land of Canaan through the conquest of Joshua and about 500 years before David, and they were living in the promised land. So here David tells them, you need to trust God while you're living here, and you need to be doing good and being faithful. That's what we should be like in this land where we are. That's the kind of nation God wants you to be among the rest of the, the world as, the, as a witness to them of me and my character, God is saying. And of course, that's true of us as Christians living after the cross, isn't it? It's the same principle. We need to be a witness to Christ and his character to those around us. And one way we can do that is to show how Jesus is our hope beyond the mess of this world, because we have that hope beyond this world. Let's, let's show that to people. And our delighting in him is one way that people will definitely notice there's something different about us. So we see that kind of thing as we read verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So this is actually a command. If you see it's the way it's written there. If you, you know, looking objectively. So it's, it's written to ancient Israel, but as before, we can take this as an instruction for us today as well. Since we're talking about the same God, yes, same God who's been the same God for uh, the whole of world history and before. So we're all to delight ourselves in the Lord. In other words, we don't delight ourselves in money or in status or anything else. God says, delight yourself in me. So what will happen then when we, when we really do that, when we do delight ourselves in, in the Lord? What do we do? What, how does that look? Well, he will give us the desires, and some translations say requests, of our heart. Now, that's obviously good. So, all right, then what does it mean to delight in the Lord? Well, it means to put your relationship with him above everything else. That's where your worth and your sustenance come from. The fact that you are his child. 
In fact, if you're in Christ, you are a child of the ultimate king. So first, that gives you a significance that absolutely nothing in this world can match. You are an heir, by faith, of an eternal fortune if you're, you're the child of royalty. And I'm not just saying that to make you feel good, although hopefully it does, but I'm saying that because it's true. If you're a believer in Christ, that's who you are. So we all need to, if we have faith in God, we need to delight ourselves in that unshakable truth that we are sons and daughters of, of God. And so when we do, we will find our loving and generous Father will certainly be attentive to us. He'll be listening. Now, keep in mind, we're down here and he's up there and we're still trying to learn the ropes of having an eternal view. I say the up there and down there just to help us that we are limited in what we can actually see while we're here. Like in the original pictures, remember, we're limited. So sometimes we might actually ask for things that aren't good for us. So God will say no to those things. But the other side of this is that we should keep in mind that we, as we do develop a more eternal perspective about God and his priorities and his passions and the things that get him excited, our desires will begin to align with his, with his more anyway. So that's another way to take this statement about God giving us the desires of our heart. He gives us the desires themselves as well. So our passions and priorities change as we get to know him better. And that works to build up our delight in him too. So it's, it's kind of a cycle, isn't it? So our delight in him helps to bring our desires in line with his, which in turn gives us more delight in him as we see things his way. So that all sort of builds on itself. And I know to some it sounds a bit too good to be true, you know, that, that could be like that. But hey, this is our God, okay? This is God. What's coming for us is better than we can ever imagine. So let's take hold of that by faith. In fact, verse 5 talks along those lines. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Okay, so a quick bit of Hebrew again, if I may. Um, and it's great to do this, especially for Hebrew, because it's such a descriptive and down-to-earth language. It's very concrete. So I'll, I'll tell you that the Hebrew word behind the idea of commit is literally to roll. So the Hebrew thought here is to if you take it literally, it says to roll your way onto Yahweh. Even though they didn't say Yahweh, they said Adonai, but you know what I mean. They roll your way onto, onto God. So you can kind of think of it like all your life, so all your worries, your desires, your needs, the whole thing, all the things that can possibly weigh you down, think of it like a big rock, big round rock. It's a huge burden that you're tempted to try and carry yourself in life. But David's wise advice here is, Hey, roll that over onto God's hands. So I should go that way because that's the way the picture's going. Sorry, that way. So roll it onto God's hands. And the way the New Testament puts this idea is this. So 1 Peter 5 verse 7, he says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Has anyone come across that verse in the last little while and it's been a comfort? <laughs> I've found that great. Just casting your cares on him. So put all those concerns and all those worries and all that stuff into his hands. Trust him and what will he do? It says there in verse 5 in the psalm, he will act. He won't just sit there on those hands. You have his promise here, he will do something. Now, it might not be at the time or in the way you expect. Remember, we're still on our trainer wheels with the eternal perspective stuff, so we miss things. But pray to him and he will move. That's his promise. 
Now, here is something also that dawned on me recently. I, I realise that when things are getting a bit tough in life, I have a tendency to pray that God will remove or change the circumstances. I'm sure some of you have probably prayed the same things. Because I want things to be nice and comfortable and happy and life to be easy, right? That's, very, that's our natural tendency. So I clearly don't have enough eternal perspective yet, do I? So I realised, afresh, kind of, that there's actually a better prayer that I should pray. Not to say, not to never pray that things change, but this is probably a better prayer to pray, is that it's not for God to change the circumstances, but to change me so that I can better handle the circumstances. Isn't that God's big goal for his children anyway, right? For us to grow? Isn't that the second part of our motto? Grow? So I can be sure that this is more in the will of God than for me just to pray that I can stay the same and then the circumstances go away and I can keep doing what I've always done. Okay? I just want to, you know, it's not about being comfortable. So hopefully you can see that. So, yes, God will act. Just not always in the direction of my physical comfort. And here's another great promise. So verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, of course, that's assuming that you're, what you're doing is righteous, which means in line with God's standards. Um, in, in other words, that is by faith. So if that's true for you, then God will bring vindication for you at some point. So it's not our job to vindicate ourselves. Again, the best example is Jesus at his trials. He didn't argue his case, even though he was innocent. And likewise, we shouldn't feel that we have to defend ourselves at every turn. If, if what we are doing is right, then God will take care of it. Which is nice to know, right? Because sometimes we don't know how to defend ourselves anyway. So, so yes, don't stress, but commit your way to God and roll your cares onto him. Now, this next section carries a lot of the same themes, next section of the psalm, but this time David makes more of a point of the importance of the long-term view, knowing how all this is going to end and uh, as an encouragement to persevere. So that's the focus of this next bit. So we're going to call it, Be Cool and Remember the End. Remember the cool idea. He always wants you to be cool. So let's keep that one with us. So it's being cool as opposed to being hot, remember. Verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Okay, so we've heard most of these ideas already, but now he includes that we need to be still before the Lord. So that's a picture of someone expectantly looking to their king, hanging on every word and action, even just like that, and, and as they wait for the next indication that he's going to move. And again, we need to control that impulse to want to do God's work for him. Yes, we need to act when it's clear that we need that he wants us to do that. But too often we try and hurry things up and just get in the way. I keep thinking of someone like Abraham, you know, he acted before God wanted him to act and made a whole lot of trouble for himself and others. But yes, we, we all know how irritating it is seeing evil seemingly winning the day. And even it can even be demoralizing if we let it. But we are to remain still, not whinge, not try to scheme a clever way out. Just keep our cool and look to him. Like I said, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. I'm just saying it's the attitude needs to be expectant, waiting on God. So keeping cool should be in our minds as we go into verse 8 now. 
because it's all about heat, verse 8. That's the Hebrew idea behind anger and wrath as well as fretting, as we saw already. So verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Easier said than done, right? So I think we don't help ourselves when we fill our minds with stuff that makes us angry. And I know the lure of that. That's, there's a kind of morbid fascination with what absolutely outrageous thing the powers that be are going to do or say next. And we're in a day when it's bombarding us from every angle, from our phones and everywhere else. So let's take real focus to switch off from stuff that makes us angry. Because... Uh, <laughs> because that's basically what this is telling us to do. And that's something I'm really learning at the moment myself, I have to say. Now, to, to get your head out of things that make you fret and that make you hot under the collar, instead, I think we should do, we do well to remember Philippians 4 verse 8. I think a lot of us have learned that as a memory verse in Sunday school. But Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So all those highlighted things are things, lots to think about, so use those things. So that's where we should be spending our time thinking, stuff like that. And the reason is both short and long-term aspects. The, the short-term reason, as David says there, is that it tends to evil in ourselves if we get angry about stuff like this. But there's also the long-term end of it all. So uh, on to Psalm 37 verse 9. For the evildoers should hopefully be cut off. Hang on, did I read that right? No. Evildoers will more than likely be cut off. That's not right, is it? <laughs> what does it say? For the evildoers shall, shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. We can shall, you can say will. It will happen. So there are two distinct and parallel outcomes that God is inescapably working towards. And it depends on whether you're a believer or an unbeliever as to which one applies to you. So as you see in this verse, their ends are vastly different. So is it very much two sides to this. And knowing both can be an equal help for our encouragement levels. So on the bad side, that evil won't last forever messing up God's good plans for the world. They'll get mown down, if you like, if I can say that. Because using the grass analogy, right? And on the, other, on the good side, that our amazing inheritance is coming and nothing Satan can do can stop it or even slow it down. Not by God's clock anyway. It might feel slow to us sometimes, but God's clock is ticking away. So in that day, all that evil will be wiped away. So verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at the, his place, he will not be there. So you've got the empty throne of being in charge there. Now, this is not all necessarily just after we die. Even before the end, either for our physical life or for everything as it is now, there are times and seasons for everything. All evil regimes have their day and fade, and all tyrants eventually fall. And when bullies have been at last been taken out of the way, the humble and the poor will have their day. So that's what verse 11 looks at. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And do you remember who quoted that in the New Testament? Feel free to speak back if you like. Jesus did. 
Yep, on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's that quote on the screen is from uh, Matthew 5, verse 5, if you haven't, can't read it. He said that the meek shall inherit the earth, showing that we can apply this principle from the, the context of Israel in the land to the whole world in the final kingdom of God. And this final kingdom will be amazing. And I know Pastor Dwayne's been speaking a bit about that recently. Um, we will have our inheritance and live in peace and we'll let's just keep that hope always before us like a lighthouse in the dark of this world because that is our great hope. So, okay, so as I wrap up today, we're just going to get a different angle on the confidence we should have in the face of evil flourishing. And that's the confidence we should get when we look at how the one who's really in charge views everything. So that's obviously God. How does he view it? Let's have a look. Because uh, too much, to us, much of the world seems scary and insurmountable, but not to God. He's not scared at all. So in fact, let's read verses 12 to 13. We'll read them together. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And I know for some that the idea of God laughing is almost sacrilegious, but this is scripture. This is what it says. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, you might know that we've seen this kind of thing elsewhere, Psalm 2 verse 4 specifically, which is talking about the rebellion of the kings of the earth. And there God responds with this. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, I don't know if that's normally how you understand God, but honestly, for me, that really is a comfort that God has that kind of response. Because here we have Satan doing his worst, or his best, depends how you want to look at it. Uh, but God is so powerful and so utterly in control, he finds, finds it, well, funny. You know, it's laughable. The disparity in power and goodness is so great that it might be like this. Like an ant trying to pick, sh uh, pick a fight with an elephant. You know? Now, if you smiled, you, you understand the, the, the humour in that. You probably understand a little bit of what, we, what I'm trying to get across here. That's, that's how it is to God. So let's think this through. So God is not the slightest bit threatened by Satan's plans, right? And as believers in Jesus, we have God living inside us by his spirit. So should we feel threatened then? No, we shouldn't. Now, sure, things might get hard at times, but in the things that really matter when all's said and done, anything Satan does only ever serves to actually help us. Um, to build us up, actually. So God turns uh, Satan's best effort uh, at, at evil to our blessing, if we take the eternal view, if we can understand that. And of course, the best example is that of the cross. Just thinking of that constantly shocks me how amazing it is that Satan would have thought that he had got his greatest victory. He killed the Son of God. Salvation is done. There's no chance humans are mine but in reality what had he done he just sealed his own fate and he'd made a way for humans to be redeemed so he'd, the two things he thought he'd won he just lost the cross is amazing so it's, it's a double fail right satan had just failed in two two ways at least but you only see that if you take the eternal view so that's what i want to leave with you this morning about the eternal view so, so don't stress don't get hot because God's got this. This is God. This is the creator of everything. He's not worried in the slightest. And if by faith our life is in him, we should be like that too. Doesn't mean life won't get difficult. 
Sometimes it gets really difficult, but it does mean that these things will only serve to make us stronger if we hold on to Jesus by faith. So let's try and have that eternal view, shall we? That's my encouragement this morning, if, where we know that we have the choice to, uh, to be the condemned rich man or to be the about-to-be-rescued poor man. We will have the perspective that being the poor man and putting up with that for now is, is the better in the end. So let's have that eternal view. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word to us that even 3,000 years ago, these truths uh, were very relevant and they're very relevant to us now, Lord, and we cling to them because they show us who you are and what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for this time together and we pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.